Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This is episode 209, and it's called Jesus H. Christ, part one, They Look Like Trees. And you know by now that if there's going to be a part one, there'll be a part two and a part three, and who knows how many parts. But before we go any farther, if I sound a little loopy in this episode, it's because last night we debuted my new play. My play is called What's a Nucka? And uh, these actors, this cast, uh, they took my play and... I can't even explain what happened. Uh, the director is Kristen Hange, and Kristen has done over a hundred. She has directed over one hundred plays and musicals. So I got to watch in rehearsals all week while she took the cast and like led them through this process of turning the script into a performance, into an experience. Um, but then to sit there last night in the audience, and watch them perform my play. Um, I was going to say it was one of the most profound creation experiences of my life, but maybe I should just say one of the most profound experiences, period, of my life. There, there, is, some, there is some alchemy, some magical, mystical thing that actors do uh, where they take words on a page and then they, they embody them, uh, yeah, it's really, really hard to put into words, but uh, it was totally, it was pure joy, but it was also totally overwhelming. Um, and you know that thing when you're in new territory, when you're in new space, when it's obviously my first play, uh, your 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 brain, your mind, your heart, your spirit is, in, is taking everything in for the first time. So you're like processing it all and your curiosity is sort of on overdrive. Um, even just watching Kristen direct the actors in the rehearsals during the week and then the choices the actors were making about how to do it and uh, the whole thing's just so stimulating and invigorating and exhausting all at the same time. So I woke up with one of those, whoo, man. And uh, we get to do it again tonight and tomorrow night. So, uh, so that's the disclaimer. If I sound a little, whoa, uh, that's, um, because that's what's going on right now. But right now, uh, before we get to the Jesus H. Christ part, um, I should tell you, I'm coming to Ohio. So Ohio, I see you. And Pittsburgh, I see you as well. Friday night, September 28th, I'll be at the Ohio Theater in Cleveland. Saturday night, the 29th of September, I'll be at Carnegie Lecture Hall in Pittsburgh. And I actually, uh, I was at the Carnegie in, uh, well, it was the Gods Aren't Angry tour, so it would have been November of 2007. So, Pittsburgh, it's been 11 years, and I'm coming back. And then Sunday night, uh, September 30th, I'll be at the Columbus Athenaeum in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, it's the Holy Shift tour, and uh, Pete Rollins is opening on all three of those, and uh, all that info, of course, is at my site. And then we just released part two of my new commentary on the book 
of Leviticus. It's called Blood, Guts, and Fire, the gospel according to Leviticus. <laughs> and you have to say it like that, the gospel according to Leviticus. Uh, part one was chapters one through seven, and it's three hours long. It's an audio commentary. And then we just released part two, which is chapters eight through 10. That's three hours as well. <laughs> At this point, we are six hours into the book of Leviticus, and we're just getting started. Uh, you can download that at my site, and then uh, there's a couple tickets left. I'm doing another two-day event here in Los Angeles at the Improv, and uh, this two-day event's called A New Mind. Um, I'm essentially doing two days of teaching and content and ideas uh, about thinking about thinking and how the expectations and assumptions... Um, that we drag into things so deeply shape um, our lives. Not only what happens, but what we do. And uh, so all sorts of things to say about that. And then of course there'll be some surprise guests. And then there's that thing that happens when you Robcast people, you, <laughs> you peoples, when you come from all over the world and get in a room for two days, whew, things happen. It's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's something. It's something to behold. So, uh, and of course, all that info is at my site as well. But now, let's get into this episode, because this is part one, They Look Like Trees, of a thing I'm going to be doing here for a bit called Jesus H. Christ. Um, so a bit of background about what we're going to do here. I've been working on this book for several years. It's It's been sitting in my computer, and the book is called Jesus H. Christ, and the subtitle, at least for a while there, the subtitle has been The Man, The Myth, The Middle Initial. <laughs> oh, my word. Uh, I don't know if that subtitle is going to last, but man, that makes me laugh. Now, uh, the book is about how I'm more compelled with Jesus Christ than ever. He's a question, a path, a paradox, a person, a center, a way of life. Uh, he's an invitation for everyone everywhere. Um, I was doing this interview in Australia a couple years ago, and I don't do my work in overtly religious or spiritual spaces, um, but you wouldn't believe the number of times what happened in this interview in Australia happens, where literally the interviewer set down his notes partway through the interviewer, partway through the interview, and just said, oh, he said, I am, I am fascinated. I think he even said, I love Jesus Christ. Um, and this is not a man who would claim any sort of, you know, Christian belonging or label or anything like that. Um, but this happens to me all the time. I was literally, uh, probably a year and a half ago, last year, speaking in a synagogue on a Friday night. And one of the questions uh, was about Jesus. And I did like a little brief mini sermon on the historic origins of the first century subversive Jesus movement. And at the end of my little mini sermon, which was simply the response to a question, they started clapping and cheering. Um, I have experienced such openness and resonance and receptivity to Jesus Christ in so many different backgrounds from people from such vast intellectual traditions and religious experiences. It's as if, it's as if there's something about him that 
calls us all to an elevated understanding of what it means to be human. I have observed people in so many different settings witnessing to a deep stirring they have about Jesus. And then, of course, you have the package, you have the religion, you have the horrific abuses and misunderstandings in the name of Jesus. And what I've also seen is a number of people who the obvious temptation is simply to turn away, um, to simply say, let's just, that's the problem. Um, But I kept noticing people who, because of the very understandable need to get far away from any of that, ended up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. The sense of, yeah, we got rid of that whole thing only to discover that there were some things in there that were really beautiful and pure and beautiful uh, and and powerful and compelling. And so, uh, so I've been working on this book, and, and right away, the title, Jesus H. Christ, it was like, oh, that's what it's called, of course. Um, and it made me laugh because I was like, wait, what does the H stand for? Remember when that used to be like a fairly popular way, uh, almost like a, like a, when I was growing up, it was like a swear. It was like a curse word, right? Like, Jesus H. Christ. And I was like, wait, what does the H stand for? So a couple of years ago, I would ask my, fr- I would ask a friend, like, hey, what does the H stand for in Jesus H. Christ? And of course, uh, everybody, nobody knows, but then we all sort of make stuff up that's even funnier. And that was when I knew, it's like, you know, you're onto something when it's so absurd and you're laughing, you're like, that would be great. I should do a book called Jesus H. Christ, that's like a a deeply heartfelt, this is is who Jesus Christ is to me, but I should also do it like the book is about, I'm going to explain to you what the H stands for. That could be like the sort of sub-theme of the book. (laughs) And and of course, if you're already laughing, you know you're onto something. I was like, that would be fantastic. So at first, the book, the whole framework of the book was me interviewing Jesus Christ. <laughs> so like literally the first question, uh, the, the book opens with me asking him, so what have you been up to? And uh, then the interview proceeds from there. And then the joke throughout the book is I keep coming back to asking him what the H stands for. And then Jesus H Christ, he keeps avoiding it. Um, he just, he keeps avoiding it till the very end when finally in the last chapter of the book, he explains to me what the H stands for. So, so I had this sort of book mapped, um, and that device was clever. Uh, I felt like it was, I mean, it, was, it made me laugh at least, and um, funny and weird. Um, in, you're, you're interviewing Jesus. So I had like me asking like really boneheaded questions and he calling me out on stuff. <laughs> but um, what's interesting is, an idea might work for like a chapter, but then uh, if you're going the distance, like if you want to do a whole book, um, some things work in short bursts, but then you try and extend them over a large arc or a period of time and they lose their steam. Like anybody here, have a, anybody listening, you have a singer-songwriter friend who, got, who bought their first harmonica, you know what I'm talking about? And now every song has harmonica on it and you're like... Yeah, the harmonica was great for a couple of songs, but does every song now, do you have to wear that metal thing around your neck all the time? <laughs> well, or the person who discovers auto-tune on the song, and so, wow, wow, they, uh, every song now has auto-tune. You're like, it was a good idea, but it didn't have what it takes to go the distance. Um, 
And what I noticed as I kept working on the book is that the this conceit of me interviewing Jesus, it got a little too art house. Um, it's like uh, the gymnastics required, because um, I was writing essentially me sort of clueless writing, uh, asking Jesus Christ questions and him being totally like amazing and sharp and funny and 10 steps ahead and heartfelt. Um, but then that was me writing him as well. Do you see what I mean? Like it, it was such a great idea, but it just didn't, it got a little too Radiohead, a little, a little too art house, a little too, uh, I couldn't get, I couldn't get to the thing. Uh, I, I started to like lose essence. And then, uh, I thought, but I do have this thing called the Robcast. I should, I should just do this as a Robcast series. And it's fascinating, this new world we're in, I can just do that. Um, and as soon as I thought about doing the book as a series of episodes to you, it was like it immediately became more intimate, more immediate, more raw, more personal, more heartfelt. It was like when I thought about, I should just do all the, the content of the book, but like straight into the microphone. It was like, oh, then I can't, I wouldn't say the word hide, but then I can't stay behind this, this sort of funny, weird interview device. I have to just like say it straight. Um, and it was like, oh yeah, that would be way, yeah, I should probably do that. Yeah, that's, it's like one of those things where all of a sudden like that resonant note hits where you're like, yep, that's, that's the way forward. So uh, I have been backwards and forwards, up and down on this book, trying to figure out its form and all that. So uh, in some strange way, you're going to help me. I'm going to take this mountain of writing on Jesus Christ, or should I say Jesus H. Christ, and I'm going to speak it part by part, episode by episode. So here we are. Think of this episode like a Think of this episode as the intro. Um, and of course, at some point at the end, although there's never really an end, is there? <laughs> at some point at the end, uh, when I don't have no idea when that would be, we'll get to that question, what does the H stand for? Uh, in Jesus H. Christ, what does the H stand for? And uh, along the way, and I shall tell you. <laughs> and along the way... Um, a number of people, uh, I mean, this happens all the time. People are like, why Jesus? Why even have a tradition? Why even stick, why even be rooted in a tradition? Why even, why? why? Uh, so we'll talk about that. And then others um, talk about what's the, what is Jesus and what is the Christ? Uh, what is the first century rabbi? And then what is the Christ that, that all people have spoken of across all sorts of backgrounds? Like, what, what's, what's that? What is Jesus and what is the Christ? And, and we'll explore that as well. So this is like an intro, um, and we'll be all over the place here, um, but we'll start with a story. There's a story in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark, it says that Jesus and his uh, disciples, he and his crew, uh, they came to a town called Bethsaida, Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man, blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And then when Jesus had spit on the man's eyes 
and put his hands on the man. Jesus asked him, do you see anything? And the blind man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then the man's eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And then Jesus said to the man, he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Okay, what a weird, inspiring, unexpected, odd story. Why a group of people apparently bring Jesus a blind man, and he leads the man outside the village. It's like there's something intimate here. So is it away from the crowd? Is it away from the village? Is it is the crowd go with them? Uh, it start because it starts with a group of people apparently are begging Jesus to do something about this blind man. Um, but by the way, if you're a Messiah, uh, if you're a son of God, if you've come to save the world, aren't you trying to draw a crowd? So why would you go outside the village? Wouldn't there be less people outside the village? Don't you want more people to see you? And then why at the end does he, does he send the man home saying, don't even go to the village? I mean, wouldn't that be the point? If you'd want him to go through the village saying, I can see, and everybody would be like, who did this? And he'd say, Jesus, and then Jesus' movement would grow. And then, of course, there's the method. Jesus spits uh, and places his hands on the man's eyes. Now, there's all sorts of evidence from the ancient world that people believed that there was something about saliva that helped heal eyes. Um, so there's a body of evidence along those lines. There's also a group of scholars who completely refute this and say that the spit has nothing to do with beliefs about healing, but spit was disgust, spit was uncleanness, spit was revulsion, and that Jesus spitting on the man's eyes is actually um, an, an act of, like, repulsion. So you can, you can literally find PhDs about Jesus and spit. It's, it's, a, it's amazing. Anyway, Jesus spits put, and then places his eyes on the man, hands on the man's eyes and then says, do you see anything? And the man says, I see people, they look like trees walking around. <laughs> trees, trees, are you with me? That is funny, trees. And so apparently it's like fuzzy, like we're partway there. We're like at 50% sight. Uh, so then Jesus takes a second pass. He does it again, because I know when you're healing somebody who's blind, you've done the same thing. You take a first shot, you spit, you rub your hands on the spit on their eyes, and if they're like, get partway there, what do you do? Well, you do it again. That's what any one of us would do. <laughs> so uh, he does it again, and there's like this urgency to it. There's an immediacy to it. Uh, and by the way, this is in the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, the whole gospel, it just flies. Like it's like in the first chapter, uh, there's the phrase immediately, there's the phrase without delay, um, at once, just then, spread quickly, too soon, immediately. Um, these are all words you find right in the first few verses of the Gospel of Mark. So this this gospel has like a urgent uh it has this speed to it. It has this rushed sense of something is happening. It's happening quickly, and Jesus is on the move. In some ways, uh, the Gospels, people are in agony 
they're desperate, they're confused. Uh, there's obviously a huge political backdrop to this. And this rabbi is on the move. He's feeding and healing and teaching and confronting and announcing and bringing hope and preaching good news. Uh, this is not some sort of stiff robot who's just like like a puppet and God is holding the strings. This is somebody who takes a first shot at it and the, the guy still has fuzzy eyesight. I don't know, the people look like tre- they look like trees. It's like, well, then we'll have to uh, do it again. Uh, it's built into this gospel itself, these stories. There's this uh, dirty, bloody, spit humanity to the whole thing. And then, of course, this oddness at the end when Jesus says, don't even go into the village. Uh, and, and this isn't the only place where Jesus heals somebody and then says, don't tell anyone. We'll have to do a whole uh, episode on that. But over and over again, he does these acts of healing and then says, don't tell anyone. Which, uh, if you're trying to save the world or if you're trying to announce something, seems the opposite of what you would do. But in some ways, this story, and I start with this story because it has it all. Hope, healing, questions, humanity, and then just weirdness stacked on top of weirdness. What about all the blind people who didn't get the spit? Um, what, what about outside uh, the village? Are we missing something? And uh, it says he let him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes, are we missing a verse? No explanation about uh, what this gesture, would this have meant something? Uh, and then if you just take it down just one layer, there's a, tre- a tremendous political dimension to this. This little detail we're giving that, that this odd story happens in Bethsaida. Well, Bet-Seda, Bet is Hebrew for house. Seda means hunting or fishing. So it's the house of hunting or fishing because this was a Galilean fishing village. People in this village would have made their living fishing on the Sea of Galilee. But what we also know from first century sources is that the Herodian dynasty, the king in the land, was making a move to commercialize the fishing rights. He had built a city called Tiberius, which was basically in order to flatter the Roman Caesar, and that the fishing on the lake was shifting from a very locally based Jewish families who'd made a living for generations fishing to a giant commercial enterprise that would essentially destroy the local fishing economy. Sound familiar? And so uh, what was happening in Bethsaida was the corrosive effects of greed and empire as they devour the vulnerable and everything else in their path. Once again, Sound familiar? And so to find somebody blind in the town of Bethsaida, um, there was a very real political dimension to this, that the kingdoms of the world were making life, uh, you might say, blindingly difficult for many of these good, humble, honest Jewish people living in these villages who are getting squeezed from every side. And so when Jesus comes along, it's, it's uh, a dangerous thing he's doing when he announces another kingdom because he's insisting that there's another, there's another way of ordering the world than simply greed, violence, and corruption. Uh, he's announcing a different kind of kingdom, uh, a kingdom 
of love and generosity and radical justice. And, and so there's a deep political dimension, uh, a revolutionary teacher coming into a village and healing uh, and announcing another kind of kingdom. Yeah, that in some ways you might say something in the crowd would be like, man, if he keeps this up, he's going to get killed, right? Because that's what empires do. They, uh, they crush opposition. And then, of course, you can also see in the story that there's a parable. Uh, there's a parable of sorts here for his disciples. And a number of scholars read this, that the spit and the placing of his hands on the eyes of the blind man is actually like a living, breathing parable about his disciples. Because we know that his disciples have been that have been obsessed with power. They sense that this leader has, he's going somewhere. And they, uh, there's all sorts of places in the Gospels where we find out that they've been arguing among themselves about when he comes into his, you know, when, when Jesus comes into power, which cabinet position will they each get? Um, when he becomes a king, that will bode well for them. That's uh, what they, they show us that they are thinking. Uh, and he's trying to get them to see that that isn't his program. This isn't one more power grab. This is about giving it away. This is about sacrifice. This is about the holy, sacred nature of a gift of generosity. So they think they know where this is headed, and he's uh, and right around this story is when he begins to tell them, I'm headed to Jerusalem. There will be a confrontation with the powers that be, and uh, I'll end up being executed. He's trying to help them see that the divine is up to something here, something extraordinary, but something counterintuitive to conventional wisdom about power and structures and authority. The temple has become corrupt, the poor have been forgotten, and he comes to stand in solidarity with everybody everywhere who's ever been pushed to the edges. And his disciples grasping this. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's losing your life in order to find it. Uh, it's the seed that's planted, and it's in the earth, and it's buried, and you can't see it, but that's what has to happen so that it can grow up out of the earth into something new. And so he's just asked him, who do people say that I am? That's what's happening right around this story. And he's headed to Jerusalem where he's going to be executed. So then you can go back and read the story that way, and you can see that it's a parable about them, that it's a living, breathing, he's, essentially the blind man can't see, but his disciples can't see. And he's trying to get them to see that their conventional thinking about what a kingdom looks like is going to fail them miserably, that he's come to rescue us from all of that. So then you can begin to read the parable at a whole nother level. Uh, you can read the healing. You can read the story. It's about sight. It's about blindness. Uh, when we comprehend something, we often will say, I see what you mean. So sight is a way that we speak of consciousness. Uh, a speak of, we speak of waking up and seeing what we didn't see before. And once you see, you can't unsee. And so then the story, you can begin to read it as a story about heightening our awareness, uh, growing in our realization that everything is connected with everything else. Uh, so this one story has so much, it speaks of the desire every one of us have to be healed, to see, to see the world made right, uh, there's a helplessness to the man, and there's a power to Jesus' healing. Uh, 
there's a tribe, there's a community, there are friends who are trying to get this man help. There is that interconnectedness of all other human beings, that moment when your heart is breaking for the pain of another, and then you think maybe the other can get help, and so you do everything you can to get them help. It's got all of this. Jesus is both a straightforward, authoritative healer, and man, this is some out there performance art. Are you with me And this one? Is he like, he's using this to teach his disciples, but he's also doing something that would have meant the world to people living in a small fishing village with the boot of the empire uh, on their neck. Uh, oftentimes, the popular conceptions of Jesus are these very straightforward sort of cardboard cutout uh, almost like he's a, you know, like a divine robot who's come to fix a problem. But if you read these stories, if you take them in, uh, if you allow them to work on you, um, you discover that the good news is better than that. They, they, they come in through the side door um, and they do something to you. This is what happened to me at an early age. Uh, these stories... They, I took them in or they took me in. I read them or they read me. Uh, I don't know how all that works, but they, they did something to me. They begin to tilt. They begin to tilt the way that I see the world. There's a story in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, some men come to Jesus carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, and they try to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus, but they couldn't do this because of this crowd. So the man... They take their friend up on the roof of the house and they lower him on his mat through the tiles in the, uh, the roof of the house into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw the friend's faith, he said to the paralyzed man, friend, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> what? Uh, when Jesus saw their faith, so when Jesus saw the faith of the friends, he says to the paralyzed man, hey, it's all good here. You're good. It's like there's something communal here, something about how we're all connected with each other. Uh, but the story, uh, it's about people wanting it. Uh, it's about breaking the rules. Like these guys cut in line, right? And I actually loved uh, the Greek phrase there is they unroofed the roof. These men literally take apart the roof in order to lower the body down into the middle of the room. It's like there's an electricity to these stories. It's like, it's like they're being, you're being caught up in something, something activating, something awakening. And from an early age, I had this sense that Jesus doesn't say, I'm uh, like the deli, uh, what was your number? You're, you're going to have to get in line with everybody else. But he's like moved. Uh, this breaking of the rules strangely thrills him, right? This did something to me. He, these people, uh, this is about desire. This is about us coming alive. What do you want? And, and how deep does your desire go? And when they unroof the roof for their friend, uh, this transgressing of the norms is not punished by Jesus or condemned. It's rewarded. It's received. It's enjoyed that there was something deep in the Jesus stories, deeply post-conventional. They're, they're embedded in these Jesus stories was some inherent critique of the system 
and the accepted norms for how everything is supposed to work. Like, what is, what's in your heart? What are your desires? I remember from an early age, this sense that he wasn't inviting me away from what I wanted, but taking me farther in to my deepest longings and aches and desires for myself and for the world. And then, of course, there's the questions. And almost every time Jesus is asked a question, he responds with a question. He responds with, well, what do you think? Uh, why are you searching for me? Where is your faith? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? What do you say? Uh, there's this great story where Jesus is speaking to a crowd and then his disciples come to him and they say, do you know that the religious leaders, like they were offended when they heard this? <laughs> I love it. It's like the disciples are still concerned, uh, right? The, the, it's like there isn't even an institution yet and they're already trying to preserve it. You know, you know, you offended some uh, religious leaders when you said that. Do you realize this? Uh, and Jesus replies, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. <laughs> they leave them. They are blind guides. Essentially, Jesus is like, seriously, this whole crowd is here. I'm doing this thing, and that's what you're focused on? The people who were offended? Seriously, leave them. They're blind guides. He's like, I'm... Uh, that's not what I'm doing here. It's not what I, why, why give my energy to that when there are all of these people here who are hungry and thirsty for what we're doing? It's almost as if he says, don't spend your energies and all that negativity. We, we got something we're doing here. Uh, and then he talks about if the blind lead the blind, then both will fall into a pit. And in one of the great lines ever, Peter says to Jesus, will you explain this parable to us? Now, this is a clear example where... Jesus could explain it. He could be very straightforward, and he could say, Peter, this means this, this means this. Come on, Jesus, make it black and white. But instead, when he says, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit, Peter says, explain the parable to us. And then Jesus asked them, are you still so dull? Oh my word, stitch that on a pillow, put that on a bumper sticker. Are you still so dull? <laughs> That's one of Jesus' questions. You, you Seriously, you guys still don't get it. You still don't get it. Yeah, this is the opposite of brainwashing. This is the opposite of nice, neat answers. There is something deep in the Jesus movement in these Jesus stories where, where he's calling us, he's calling all of us to grow up, to own our path. So when people say things like, well, you know, well, I was always taught, yeah, uh-huh, and now you're being invited to grow up and leave that behind. One of the things Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he keeps saying, you've heard it said, but I tell you. He, he comes to activate us, to, to make us more alive, to awaken us, to heighten our sense that this matters. Um, and so if, if it's going to have anything to do with Jesus H. Christ, with the Jesus Christ who's doing something, it's going to be the opposite of brainwashing. It's going to invite you to engage with your senses, with your rationality, with your heart, with your sense of the imaginative and transcendent, it's, it's going to be a heightened engagement of your life and the world. And there's, one, and, and there's a rich man who he invites the rich man to sell his possessions, partly because the rich man had revealed this 
was essentially his God, and the rich man walks away, he doesn't follow. Uh, Jesus essentially points out to him, for him to experience the fullness of life, he'll have to let go of a few things, and the man can't do it. And he turns and walks away, and Jesus doesn't follow after him. He's come to save the world, but apparently on this day, not that guy. Uh, Some hear it and see it, and some don't. Uh, Jesus even talks about some who have, they're ever seeing but not perceiving, they're ever hearing but they don't understand. It's like the mystery of why some people wake up and some people don't. It's as if he's already made peace with it. Uh, on the cross when he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's as if he's already on the front end made peace with the fact that human beings have this freedom to act, to think, to say, to do uh, whatever we want. Uh, And so he's throwing himself into it, but at some deep level of the soul, he's holding it with an open hand. That speaks to me. Uh, He's... He's not surprised. He's brokenhearted. Uh, He's thrilled. He's shocked. He's sad. There's an ache. Um, And yet he holds it all with a certain, if you can forgive people who are executing you, you are both 100% in the game, and yet you are also holding it with some sort of open hand. It's as if he's constantly throwing out seeds, watching to see whether it's fertile soil or whether it's rocky soil. And... uh, so that's what happened to me as I came in. I came in through that door, through these stories, and they worked on me. These stories rung true at some uh, poetic, mythic soul level. I don't even really know how to say that. They resonated with me. They spoke to me of how things are. When Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first, there is something about an alternate ranking to the world. Um, that it isn't just the best, richest, most popular, most powerful, but there's some other way to think about how the world gets ranked. And I didn't come, uh, I didn't, I didn't come like I didn't do a catechism as a kid. I know I, people, I've heard people talk about that. Um, I wasn't part of like a specific denomination. Um, there wasn't like any doctrinal system that I came out of. Um, I. Uh, my parents would take us to church, but it was uh, I heard about the Jesus, and something within me responded. Uh, there was something pure about that. Uh, there's still something, in some strange way, purer than ever about that. And I loved this story. Um, Jesus is with his disciples, and um, one of them tells him, hey, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop them because uh, he is not one of us. <laughs> we saw, G- Rabbi, I don't know why they're from Brooklyn or Boston. Uh, one of the disciples is like, Jesus, Rabbi, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because, you know, he's not one of us. And Jesus replied, do not stop him. Whoever is not against you is for you. Jesus isn't the slightest bit threatened. Apparently, his disciples come across somebody who's not wearing the uniform, right? They're not, they're not wearing the jersey. They're not from the right school. Um, they don't have the right face paint on. You know what I mean? <laughs> Whatever it is they're doing, it's a good thing, apparently. I mean, I think we would all argue that less demons is better. Um, 
And Jesus isn't slightly threatened by this. He isn't, he isn't stressed. There's an openness that his own disciples don't have. They're already thinking in terms of us and them. They're already seeing things through the tribal team lens that Jesus simply doesn't have. There's this open acknowledgement again and again and again throughout the Gospels with a Roman centurion, with a Sidonian woman, uh, with tax collectors who were the hated of the hated. He affirms the goodness of humanity, and he affirms human beings waking up and moving and changing and growing wherever he finds it. He doesn't really have like some large complicated system of categories and labels. He seems to interact with people at some sort of human level, transcending all of the ways. You aren't, as a Jewish man, supposed to interact with a Samaritan woman. He talks to a Samaritan woman. He goes to places way outside the Galilee region. He interacts with Roman saturians, which of course were the worst of the worst of the worst at some level at that day. And yet he sees them. It's like it's like what he's interested in is our shared humanity. Uh, yeah, that we are humans before we are all of the other labels we've cooked up to divide ourselves. And this, uh, over the years, this has done something to me. Uh, partly because at an early age, the labels just didn't work. Uh, I told, uh, when I was in, uh, I was probably high school, my parents took us to this church service, and there was this guy, guy did this sermon, um, and at the end of the sermon, he did this thing where he asked everybody to bow their heads, and then he asked if anybody wanted to be a Christian. And uh, according to this guy, you could just bow your head and say a prayer, and uh, you could, in that moment... You could just become a Christian, and then when you then because you were going to go to hell, but if you said this prayer, then you could go to heaven right there. Like you could just say like a two minute prayer, and then he said this prayer and he invited people to say the prayer with him. But he made sure that everybody's heads were bowed, and then he said, "How many of you said that prayer?" And now you're going to go to heaven instead of hell. And I'm uh, like a high school. This probably tells you everything you know about me. I just lifted my head to watch because I was like, "Whoa, this is this guy's like, this is pretty." crazy bold here. What in the world? So I just raised my head to look around. I think I told the story at the end of my book, Velvet Elvis. Um, and he's, and, and then the, and then this preacher starts saying like, oh, I see a hand over there. I see a hand over there. People making important decisions tonight. Uh, and, and he said like, I see a hand over there and I'm looking around the room and there are no hands. And this guy is like, now keep your heads bowed, keep your heads bowed. And he's doing that thing. Everybody with, with every head bowed and every eye closed. Oh, I see a hand over there. Oh, people making and Oh, this is a big night. This is a life-changing night for some of you. Anybody else? But I'm looking around the room with my head up, and nobody's raising their hands. So what happened early on is I saw people who talked a lot about Jesus, but I'm just telling you, if you're lying, that can't be the way in. Are you with me on that? If it's like this weird performance art, this dramaturgy of 
heads bowed and hands raised, but it's all kind of a staged lie. That can't be, man, that can't be the way in. Are you with me on that? That can't, that seriously, if you got to resort to that, you're, that, your thing is just not, you are not smoking what you're selling. That's not working. Uh, and so, I, I mean, this goes back way, this is like the, the 80s. I just, the people who called themselves Christians, often, I saw lots of things that had nothing to do with Jesus. Um, and then I saw things that were so Christ-like, and that person doing that thing that was like, now that's what Jesus, even my, even my knuckle-headed 16-year-old brain could be like, that's what Jesus had in mind, and yet the person doing that would never have used, you know, some sort of, you know, Christian label or anything. So at some level, at some point for me, early on, the labels just failed. Uh, And I kept noticing that Jesus is not owned or controlled by the people who talk about him the most. That The people who talk about him the most don't have any sort of inside track. They have not cornered the market on the Jesus Christ that I had had these real flesh and blood experiences with, that it was doing something in me. So at some point, the whole sort of religious machinery, uh, and I got nothing but love and respect for a, a lot of things that people are doing in the name of Jesus, but a lot of it, I just, that didn't work. The categories and labels just didn't work. And then uh, I went to seminary and at the seminary that I went to, there were students from 120 denominations. <laughs> Did you even know there were 120 denominations? Good Lord. And, uh, but I didn't have any of those associations. Like, I didn't come from any of that tradition. So there were people there who were like, oh, you know, we're Presbyterian. I didn't even know what any of that meant. Literally, when I went to seminary, you have to fill out all these forms, and it would say you had to name, like, what your... I don't know, like what your Jesus team is, what your denomination is, but there was a category undenominational. And I was like, oh, I guess that's me. I'm un. But then there was also a category, I'll never forget this. I would have been 21 years old. There was an un category. There was also a non-denominational category. So I I was like, I had to pick between <laughs> undenominational and non-denominational. Like there is literally a distinction to be, man, religious people they can split hairs endlessly. <laughs> and all of it, honestly, it just had nothing to do with the Jesus H. Christ <laughs> that, that I was compelled by. Uh, but people who did have something interesting to say about Jesus, I was in. That's fan- more. Give me more. I'd sit there for hours. But this whole sort of giant machinery, I just didn't find it. In, it I didn't come in through that door. Uh, but I found in this Christ like a way of life, a sound, a call, an invitation. It was like an insistent drumbeat, uh, almost like a song you hear that you want to see more of and always, always, always love, love. Uh, this insistence on love. There's this line in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And something that, to me, just 
even now, today, whew, doing this right now, like, like cuts through everything. It just cuts through all the clutter and chatter. It cuts through all the Twitterizing of the world. Like, to become like that, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, on the people who deserve it and the people apparently who don't, on that team and every other team, on everybody you love and everybody you hate. Uh, it's, it's as if Jesus keeps saying, look how the divine is with you, so you go and do the same. This call beyond a tribal God to the God of all, to the love that is actually all you need. I, uh, there was something about this that from way back to me, this was something about the future of the world, nonviolence, another way. It's as if Jesus kept witnessing to a deep goodness to creation. Creation does not need violence to move forward. And even the fact that when he's crucified, he, he, he dies rather than resist violently. The ultimate invitation to nonviolence. And so much shockingly that I saw that went on in the Christian label that was violent to its core, and that Jesus came to rescue us from that as well. And that that love, that love wasn't just an inner personal feeling or experience, but that it was, that it led you to live in the world in a particular way. When Jesus feeds 5,000, I remember the day that I realized, wait, what are 5,000 people doing way out in the middle of nowhere? Oh, they're hungry. Yeah, why are they hungry? Because there isn't enough food, or there is enough food, but those with the power to control the food supply aren't letting them have it. Oh, no wonder Jesus feeds the 5,000. These people are in incredibly stressful political and economic days, and they're looking to him. When I began to realize that what he was doing was both deeply personal and utterly political, this was love that had within it political confrontation. Um, he's feeding people. He's the feeding of the 5,000, which I actually think is what happened when those who had bread shared it with those who had none. And that's that, that is the miracle. Uh, he's changing hearts. <clears throat> and I mean, that to me is, that's a reading of the story. Ooh. But we also know from history that this is one of the things that the Caesars and that the Herodians were doing is bread was a political statement. Bread was about how things are distributed. It was about justice. And once again, he's doing this profound act of love, but it has ferocious political implications. He's confronting the corrosive power of empire that puts wealth in the hands of a few. I mean, Jesus is in many ways, he's the original rage against the machine. Uh, and he goes to his death. This this is love and healing. This is inclusion and embrace, but it's also critique. It's also raging critique. He comes in from this line of ferocious, feisty, fierce Hebrew prophets who spoke up against the systems of the world that hold people down, that hold the poor, that hold women, that hold minorities, that hold anybody who's ever been pushed around or marginalized. He comes to critique. He comes with ferocious critique, and he's willing to go to his death insisting that there's a better way of organizing the world. Yeah, yeah. And his critique, uh, 
of those in power who misuse that power is relentless and intense and barbed. There's this one line, uh, there's a series of woes, woe to you, um, where he's bringing it to these religious leaders. And at one point he says to these religious leaders, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And then when you do, you make that convert twice the son of hell that you are. (laughs) Oh, and you know what happened to me? All that anger, it's okay. It's okay. When you find yourself whether it's abuse in the Catholic Church, whether it's the Christian right, when you find uh, when you find religion that's gone off the rails and something rises within you, when you see political leaders being do, uh, I mean, what, where do I even begin with that? When you see corporate leaders, when when you see structures with embedded, entrenched patterns of oppression and deceit, and something within you rises up with this like righteous, this isn't about you and your ego, this is about, this is not a proper, just ordering of the world. Yes, that anger, yeah, of course you should be furious, yeah, yeah. The question, of course, is what you'll do with that. We'll get to that in future episodes. But uh, the idea that there are certain things that you couldn't say is completely foreign to the Jesus tradition. The idea that certain things are off limits, the idea that certain things wouldn't be spoken about or spoken against, uh, the idea that you would sort of tiptoe around, uh, Jesus is killed because he refuses to be quiet. He stands in solidarity with everybody everywhere who's ever been on the wrong end of a misordering or a bad constructing, a destructive, unjust constructing of the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this critique, and so I'd, I'd, I'd meet up with people who somehow had confused Jesus with this giant hairball of religious machinery and be like, wait, no, no, no. The thing that you're hacked off about, the thing that you are righteously furious about, yeah, yeah. Jesus is too, of course, of course, of course. And again and again and again, he takes you into the paradox, or maybe I should say the fullness of life. There is the peace, there is the calm, there is the stillness, everything is going to be okay. And then there is the urgent, passionate call to arms. When you need that word of peace, calm, stillness, you're going to get through this, you're going to make it. Yeah, that's the Christ speaking. And then when something lights a fire under you and you find yourself with this urgent, passionate call to do something, yeah, the Christ is there too. He's in the humbling, that smalling, sobering, smalling like a verb. You know those moments when you find you're confronted with your own smallness. And then he's in that exalting, invigorating, inspiring sense that you're a human being and you're here and let's do this, that you're capable of way more. When he says you'll do even greater things than these. And we'll talk about that as well in in future episodes. It's both deeply personal. Uh, I sensed early on, I felt this sense that there was a peace, there was a forgiveness, there was a love, there was an embrace that this this Jesus met me in my shadows. All of my insecurities, all of my fears, all of the mess I've made of so many things, he meets me there. Uh, 
He insists that you can build your house on a rock. I mean, this is a radical idea. Uh, he insists that you don't have to be tossed to and fro. He insists that you don't have to be enslaved to your anxieties. He insists that you don't have to be owned by worry. He literally says, don't worry. Like it's a command. Don't worry. He actually believes that you can live without worry. He keeps insisting, I will be with you, the Christ, especially in John's gospel, which is so, like, it's like the super mystical gospel. He, John just, he speaks of this Christ that you abide in, and this Christ who will be with you to the end of the age. Yeah, and Jesus, he uses a very rabbinic term, yoke. He keeps insisting that there's a flow. You can take his yoke upon you, and it's light. It's light. It's light. It's not guilt. It's not shame. Of course, your life will have struggle. Of course, it will be difficult. It's the world. But he invites you into a deeper flow where you're not living beating yourself up. That voice on your shoulder isn't constantly haranguing you with all the things you aren't. Uh, and you're not obsessed with rules and rule keeping. He comes to free you from all of that. It's both deeply personal and at the same time communal and political and social and societal. He's insisting that the whole thing can be ordered in a better way. It's both about your heart, and then it's about the systems that we build and are surrounded by and resist against, and then and it's about the whole cosmos. It has something to do with your, your very flesh and bones and something to do with the very nature of the universe yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's what has happened to me over the years. When people ask, why Jesus? Oh, that's a fantastic question. First off, any good tradition catapults you beyond the tradition. If you're serious about Jesus, if you actually take him seriously, then it takes you into what it means to be human, and that takes you into everybody everywhere. So any good tradition will catapult you beyond it. Uh, but, I, but I would say also, the universal needs a particular. You want peace? Of course you do. Change, progress, love— you want people to lay down their arms? You want more generosity? You want less of a gap between the haves and the have-nots? Of course, of course. But these universal ideas that we can all affirm, they need a particular. They need to be incarnated in flesh and blood. They need actions in time and space. If it's just rousing ideas that sort of float out there, what we need is a path here and now. And when we talk about Jesus and the Christ and what those two are and what they mean, we'll talk about both the, the, the giant stories that speak to us, those enduring myths that, that sort of drive the human story, but then if they don't become incarnated in history, in flesh and blood, then they're just ideas. Uh, you need both. You need both. A path is incredibly helpful. And and you have a path, like you're on a path. Uh, the question is, where did you get this path? For many people, they duct tape together a, a number of different ideas from mentors and teachers and songs and movies and education and experience, like friends, like parents. You just sort of duct tape together. But part of the power of an actual tradition uh, is that there's a path here. And more importantly, there's thousands of years of wisdom from all across uh, human tradition. But, but to me, the power of a path is 
It anchors you, it grounds you, it centers you, and it gives you a place from which to embrace everybody everywhere. So you affirm the truth wherever you find it. It's an anchoring and grounding so that you can be as wide and expansive as possible. There are great mysteries to being human, to living in this world, this universe, this cosmos. And and this, why Jesus? Because this naming of the mysteries at some level rings true to me. Heaven and earth coming together, the divine and human in the same place, an elevation of what it means to be a human being. It's both familiar to me and jolting. It's both it's both the spurring to leave home and the welcoming home. It's both a compass and a guide and a center. And it's also that which turns everything upside down and disrupts you in all sorts of new ways. Uh, it's all of these at the same time. And it, and it somehow rings true to me. There's this great line, one of the uh, writers in the New Testament, in talking about Jesus, talks about the kenosis of Jesus. It's this Greek idea of emptying. talks about the emptying of the divine, um, that the Christ is the emptying of the divine. We'll, we'll talk about that, of course, down the road a ways. But the, the, these, I, these ideas, these ideas to me are profound invitations and insights into just what might be possible. And then Jesus' insistence that this is a path that you can walk, that anyone can walk, that over and over again, it's not about all the smart people and beautiful people, and it's not about all the people with the best education, the best money, all that, Ugh, all the people with inside access, please. He endlessly takes that apart. The, the voice of Jesus H. Christ across the ages is it's a, just a different way of understanding the whole thing. Everybody, anybody can, anybody can become generous. Anybody can learn to worry less. Anybody can become fearless. That with this Christ, it's both this first century Jewish rabbi and it's something about the nature of the universe itself. And uh, what's happened to me over the years is the love that I would feel, the wonder and the awe, the hope. Um, I kept in this Christ experiencing a transcendent sense that I was but one small instrument. That in the Christ, in this Jesus H. Christ, I I found this deep sense, and I keep finding it over and over again, uh, this this affirmation... um, that all those times I bumped into the wonder and awe and hope and love, they were not random, they were not a mistake, and they were not a futile wish, but that they're something elemental about the whole thing. That when Jesus speaks of our Father or Father of us, or you could say Mother and Father of us, he uses metaphors, because that's all you got when you're talking about the infinite. Um, He's essentially insisting that the universe is a particular kind of place. It's a It's a place undergirded by love and generosity. It just keeps giving forth, and you can enter into that. He keeps insisting that there's some sort of mystery baked into every square inch of creation, and that mystery every one of us can actively participate in and enjoy. Yeah, that's that's what I'm talking about when I talk about Jesus H. Christ. So, man, man, I, 
that took me somewhere. Whew. So uh, that's the intro. Those are a few thoughts just to sort of get things going. And uh, now um, we'll go on from here to a part to a part two and a part three. But for now, uh, my brothers and sisters, may you experience this wonder and awe, this hope. May you build your house upon a rock. May you taste and feel the personal and the communal, the cosmic, the universal, the political, the social. May, may all of it. May, may you hear that voice of the Christ calling to you from across the ages. May grace and peace be with you.